This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. All my landed property east of the Appalachian Mountains is under rent, except the estate called Mount Vernon. This, hitherto, I have kept in my own hands. But from my present situation, from my advanced time of my life, from a wish to live free from care, and as much at my ease as possible during the remainder of it, and from other causes which are not necessary to detail, I have, laterally, entertained serious thoughts of letting this estate also. Reserving the mansion house farm for my own residence, occupation, and amusement in agriculture, provided I can obtain what in my own judgment and in the opinion of others whom I have consulted, the low rent which I shall mention hereafter, and provided also I can settle it with good farmers. Besides these, I have another motive which makes me earnestly wish for the accomplishment of these things. It is indeed more powerful than all the rest, namely, to liberate a certain species of property which I possess, very repugnantly to my own feelings, but which imperious necessity compels, and until I can substitute some other expedient, by which expense is not in my power to avoid, however well disposed I may be to do it, can be defrayed. This rather lengthy introduction quote is actually from two separate letters. The first part was from Washington's letter to Arthur Young of December 12, 1793, and the second part, where he discusses having another motive, is from a letter to Tobias Lear of May 6, 1794. Washington sent Lear a copy of his letter to Young and explained in a paragraph that he marked as private and did not include in his files containing a copy of the letter to Lear a final motive to his thoughts at leasing out nearly all of the lands of his estate. Yes, you are interpreting this letter right. George Washington was saying that he no longer wanted to be a slave owner. This was revolutionary talk from the man who had led the new nation through the American Revolution and was now leading it through the perilous waters of the 1790s. However, this will not be the only rebellion against the status quo discussed in this episode. Not by a long run. Welcome to this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Let's back up a few months to September 1793 to bridge the gap a bit between last episode and this one. If you'll recall, in the last episode, through the latter part of 1793, Philadelphia was in the throes of a yellow fever epidemic, and Washington and his family had left on September 10th, bound for Mount Vernon. On September 18th, he was met at his home by a fife and drum corps and escorted across the Potomac River to the Federal District where he led a ceremony as Grand Master Pro Tem, assisted by the Alexandria Lodge No. 22 and the Grand Lodge of Maryland, to lay the cornerstone for the U.S. Capitol building. As described by Washington biographer James Thomas Flexner, quote, For the ceremony of laying the cornerstone of the Capitol of the United States, nature had provided a bright autumn day. The President's House, where the parade started, was hardly more than a half-dug foundation. The procession advanced into what was a rough forest lane, stumps still in the middle of the road, tall enclosing trees. Side lanes vanished into thick woodland. 
Washington could see only an occasional hint of the great city that glowed in his imagination. Here a surveyor's stake, there a half-cleared lot. The few completed houses sprawled at angles to the road. They had been built before Major L'Enfant had, with Washington's encouragement, laid out a capital city worthy of a nation many times larger and more powerful than the existing United States. It may not have been much, but it was a start, and likely came as a respite, however brief, for Washington. For one moment, he could see evidence that his work was establishing a firm foundation and stability for the nation. Likewise, despite other problems on the estate, Washington was able to look as more evidence of progress at the newly completed two-story, 16-sided barn at Mount Vernon, for which he had sent instructions for its construction in October of the year prior, as mentioned in episode 1.13, and that had been built in his absence. Ultimately, though, both represented the future, and Washington still had the many issues of the present standing between him and that future. For some folks in the western lands, however, the future was not looking like quite so bright of a prospect as it was for the nation's president. Do you remember how, back in episode 1.8, I mentioned a tax being passed on whiskey in March 1791, which was going to have a detrimental effect on the economy in the West, as whiskey was not just a drink, but a de facto form of currency in a region that did not have much hard currency and relied on a barter system, of which distilled spirits played a stabilizing role as it was able to be easily transported across long distances without spoilation and thus depreciation of value? If you don't remember, then there you go. In March 1791, the federal government passed a tax on whiskey as part of the administration's financial scheme, and the people who proposed and passed it did not seem to understand the role it played in the economic system that operated beyond the eastern seaboard. What the eastern elites saw as a luxury tax was, in fact, an income tax in the West. As explained by historian William Hoagland, quote, the poorest people hired hands paid in kind, experienced the whiskey excise as a tax on income. If community distillers had to pay the tax, they'd have to compensate themselves by taking a larger share of whiskey, that is, currency, from people who brought their grain salaries in for conversion. Growers, too, felt the pain. There was no tax on grain, but Westerners who raised grain were forced, in part by federal policies that kept the Mississippi River closed, to convert grain to whiskey in order to transport it eastward. The tax thus imposed a federal tax on Western farmers, while leaving farmers in more convenient and prosperous places untaxed. Furthermore, it indirectly discriminated against small producers to the benefit of larger distilleries. There were two means of calculating the amount of tax to be paid. In the tax bill as proposed by Hamilton, it divided distillers into those in urban localities and those in the country, as distillers in cities, towns, and villages could be more easily monitored by tax officials. They would pay a tax at a rate set per gallon of distilled spirits produced. Meanwhile, the distillers out in the country would pay, quote, an annual flat fee on the gallon capacities of their stills, based on a calculation that Hamilton devised assuming a four-month distilling season. However, for smaller producers, they weren't always able to go on a regular time scale of production, as they had other duties to tend to on their farms. Thus, they wouldn't necessarily meet the capacity assumed by Hamilton, but would still be taxed as if they were producing at maximum capacity. Thus, they would in reality be paying more per gallon than the large-scale producers in the urban areas. 
Because of that, they would have to raise their rates higher on their limited production in order to pay the tax, while large-scale industrial producers, who had already been putting pressure on small producers, could simply make up the difference by producing larger batches on a more regular timetable and thus could undercut the price that the small producers would have to charge. Large distilleries were in favor of the whiskey tax, as they saw it as a way to eliminate competition. In the estimation of many in the West, not only did the Eastern leaders in government misunderstand the impact of the tax on the people in the West, but they also ignored the fact that Westerners were not known for buckling under pressure presented by authority. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From some of the early days of settlement by people of European descent in what we now know as Western Pennsylvania, those moving west to make their home in the area were known for their opposition to authority when it was seen to be acting against their best interest. Around the close of the French and Indian War, after the British had reoccupied the forks of the Ohio, quote, when the British Army adopted a policy of selling arms to Indians, a local militia turned fearlessly on the army. Men blackened their faces and dressed like Indians, ambushing drovers who moved arms and supplies on lonely tracks. The blacks, as they were known, stole army rum, whiskey, and arms, and set supplies on fire. They captured officers, forcing them to resign and imposing local rules to keep witnesses from testifying and juries from convicting. When suspects were scheduled to be taken out of the area for trial, the blacks made dashing rescues. To them, the Proclamation of 1763, forbidding new white settlements from being established west of the Appalachians, was considered as not worth the paper it was printed on, and was by and large ignored. Quote, as early as 1771, formal associations of squatters on lands in the west were escorting Pennsylvania's provincial deputies out of the area with orders never to come west again. During the Revolution, locals started talking about breaking away from both Pennsylvania and Virginia, the two states that claimed the area, and possibly even breaking away from the newly formed United States altogether. If anyone in the East thought that the Constitution was going to change anything in how Westerners viewed the situation, they were soon in for a rude awakening. In the late summer of 1791, a meeting was held in the town of Washington, Pennsylvania, which adopted a resolution that would be published in the local newspaper afterwards, asserting that, as the tax represented a threat to the locals' rights to property, any federal tax officers coming to collect the whiskey tax should be treated as, quote, public enemies. All decent people should refuse these officers' aid and cooperation and treat them with contempt. Thus, when Robert Johnson, a local man recently appointed collector of the federal revenue for Washington and Allegheny counties in western Pennsylvania, was riding through the forest near Pigeon Creek one evening, quote, he found his way blocked by men who forced him to dismount. The gang numbered 15 to 20, armed with muskets, rifles, and clubs. They were black-faced. Many wore women's dresses. These were his neighbors, but they saw in him a public enemy. Thus, they stripped him of his clothes, quote, cut his hair to bare his skull, and tarred and feathered him. 
This sounds so innocuous and accounts of the process told to grade school children, but it should be remembered that, quote, on flesh, hot tar not only inflicts pain, but also can sear, pores close, and skin, orifices, and genitals can suffer permanent injury. Once the victim is sufficiently sticky, poultry feathers are applied, which, when shaken over a freshly tarred victim, or when he was made to lie down and roll in them, bond it with the slowly hardening blackness, and can be removed only with time and effort. I stress again, these were his neighbors, not strangers, who were doing this to him for doing a job. After the process was complete, the gang stole his horse and left the scalded and traumatized Johnson alone in the darkness of the forest. As far as the Westerners were concerned, this would not be a pretty fight. They may not have the political clout or the financial capital to mount a challenge, but they were fighting for their livelihoods and for the future of their families. They were determined not to fail, no matter what they had to do to win. Though Johnson would ultimately survive the ordeal and began to identify the attackers that he recognized, they would ultimately go unprosecuted. A deputy field marshal arrived in Allegheny County in October 1791 to serve warrants to those who Johnson had named, but understanding the danger at trying to serve warrants to people who had not too long before tarred and feathered another federal official, he consulted with the inspector of the federal revenue for the district, John Neville. Neville was a Revolutionary War veteran who had risen to the rank of general and had, after the war, ventured west, where he established a 10,000-acre plantation named Bower Hill. By 1791, Neville was the person chiefly responsible for ensuring the collection of the whiskey tax, and who also happened to be a large-scale distiller and wealthy entrepreneur. It should be noted here that his appointment to the post was another sign to locals that this tax would benefit the wealthy while decimating small local business. After they discussed the situation, they decided to send a local elderly cattle drover named John Connor. No Terminator fans, I don't think he was that John Connor, though with time travel, one can never be too sure, to actually serve the warrants, to show that they were serious and that no agent of the government would be spared. The elderly Connor was stripped down, tarred, feathered, tied up, and left in the woods with his money, his horse, and the warrants disappearing with the perpetrators. Once word came of Connor's reception, the deputy field marshal fled, and nothing more was heard about serving warrants. Meanwhile, later in the month, a young newcomer to the area named Robert Wilson came under suspicion of being a spy for the Treasury Department as he started asking too many questions about distilling in the area. Thus, he was kidnapped one night by the same gang that had accosted Johnson and Connor and taken to a blacksmith shop where he was stripped down while an iron heated up in the fire. They applied the iron to his skin and demanded that he pledge to end his spying and to renounce the whiskey tax. He wouldn't do either, so he too was tarred and feathered. But apparently he put up quite a fight as some of his assailants ended up with tar and feathers on them as well. Turns out, Wilson wasn't a spy at all, or any sort of agent from the federal government. He was just a citizen who supported the administration, and he paid a painful price for it. Not all Westerners felt that violence was the answer, though. Some chose to fight the new tax by sending petitions to Congress, while others made their arguments against the tax known in print through public letters published in Philadelphia newspapers. 
The U.S. Representative from Western Pennsylvania, William Finley, attempted to fight a revision to the law which would ultimately benefit the large-scale distillers even further over the small producers. But the only change he succeeded in securing by the time the revised excise bill became law on May 8, 1792, was a reduction in the tax by one cent. Thus, by the summer of 1792, around 500 men organized into a band called the Mingo Creek Association with the goal of bringing the West into armed rebellion against the Eastern establishment. In late August of that year, 40 delegates gathered at a convention in Pittsburgh, which drew up a list of demands, quote, including the replacement of the whiskey excise tax with a progressive tax on wealth, and with the delegates signing pledging in the resolution, quote, to support any action taken against any resident who aided federal officials. In this group of 40 delegates was a man who will come to play a prominent role in the presidencies of our third and fourth presidents, an immigrant from Switzerland who in 1792 was serving in the Pennsylvania State Assembly and was known to be, quote, a committed Republican and anti-federalist. Albert Gallatin was among the delegates signing the convention's resolution. Meanwhile, the Washington administration was receiving reports of the agitations in western Pennsylvania and had to start considering how to bring the situation back under control. They were having trouble in other parts of the nation as well, with reports coming in that, quote, revenue inspectors in North and South Carolina were resigning and that no tax had been collected in Kentucky. However, due to the large amount of whiskey produced, along with its relative close proximity to the capital in Philadelphia, Western Pennsylvania was prominent on Hamilton's radar as an area where an example could be made to any others who thought of taking extra-legal means to oppose the tax. As early as September 1792, Hamilton was thinking about the possibility of Washington himself riding out and leading a military force to the scene, but he was overruled in deliberations that fall by Washington and other cabinet members, including Attorney General Randolph, who felt that the time for force had not yet come. They would all have to wait to see what 1793 brought. While the rumbles of rebellion were just starting in the American West, the French Revolution could best be described as a cacophonous avalanche. When last we left France in episode 1.15, the deposed king had just been executed, and the French Republic had declared war on the British and the Dutch, who joined with Austria and Prussia, who had been at war with France since 1792. This group of nations would come to be known as the First Coalition. To fight so many nations on so many fronts, the French National Convention passed a decree on February 24, 1793, calling for the volunteer, if possible, but conscription, if necessary, of 300,000 men to augment the existing military force. This conscription order, added to already existing regional tensions in various parts of France, caused numerous internal uprisings to spring up. On March 11th, a revolt began in the Vendée region, in west-central France on the Atlantic coast, and quickly spread to Brittany. On April 29th, an uprising began in Marseille, on the southeastern Mediterranean coast. This was followed by agitations in Aix, Arles, Avignon, and Nîmes. Then, in late May, the second-largest city in France, Lyon, went into open revolt against the National Convention. 
Meanwhile, after the French defeat at the Battle of Nierwenden on March 18, the French commander, Charles-Francois de Maurier, began to negotiate with the Austrians for an armistice in exchange for his marching his army on Paris. However, when de Maurier issued the order to his troops to turn around and march to take the French capital, they refused his order, and instead, de Maurier crossed the lines and defected. By the end of May, it was clear that the Girondin-led government had to go. And so, on May 31st, an uprising began against them. And by June 2nd, the Committee of Public Safety called for the arrest of 29 Girondist deputies. Thus, the Girondins were purged from the French National Convention. By late July, a provincial bourgeois originally from Artois was beginning his ascent. Maximilien Robespierre joined the Committee of Public Safety. As the players on the board changed places and new leaders came to power, so too did the power of the mob begin to play a more prominent role in government policy. Food riots had occurred in Paris earlier in the year in late February due to the high price of basic commodities, and prices had continued to rise throughout the year, which many were blaming on, quote, moderates in the National Convention. As August gave way to September, news arrived in Paris that, quote, rebels at Toulon, the great naval harbor of the Mediterranean coast, turned the port, its arsenal, and fleet over to the British. This was much too much. And on the 5th of September, as organized by Jacobin leaders, a group of common people known collectively as the sans-culottes, which literally is translated as without breaches, marched to the French National Convention to demand that something be done to bring about higher wages and more bread for the common folks of France. They wanted those who were hoarding food and supplies to cough them up by any means necessary and asserted that the revolutionary armies, which had been authorized by an action in late August, ought to be organized to enforce the fair distribution of goods. As noted by historian William Doyle, quote, The convention voted to do it on the spot, although it did not authorize the guillotines on wheels, which Chaumette, leader of the Sanculottes, thought every detachment of the new force ought to have. Then, Danton, a Jacobin leader in the convention, also moved that arms production be stepped up until every patriot had a musket, that the revolutionary tribunal be divided so as to get through more business, and that, as he put it, to permit hard-working men who live by the price of their sweat to attend their sectional assemblies, those assemblies should take place twice weekly and attendance at them be paid. It was all carried by acclamation amid scenes of delirium. Terror was now the order of the day. By September 17th, a new law of suspects had been passed by the convention, which authorized, quote, the watch committee set up the previous march to arrest anyone who either by their conduct, their contacts, their words, or their writings showed themselves to be supporters of tyranny or to be enemies of liberty as well as a number of more specific categories, such as former nobles who have not constantly manifest their attachment to the revolution. As noted by Doyle, quote, practically anybody might fall foul of such a sweeping law. Before the month was out, radical leaders were using this authority to sweep political rivals into prison. On October 3rd, Girondin leaders were sent for trial. And on the 10th, the National Convention decided that the Constitution, which had been drafted earlier in the year, could not, in fact, be brought into force due to the state of emergency that they claimed the nation was in. Thus, it put the Committee of Public Safety in charge of being the central guiding force 
of the governing apparatus for the nation. This revolutionary government, which had nothing in the way of checks and balances, legal recourse, or appeal, would be in charge until further notice. One of the first people that this empowered revolutionary government led to the scaffold was a bit of old business to be dealt with, the former queen, Marie Antoinette. She was executed on October 17th, and the period known as the Terror would claim victims both famous and infamous, rich and poor, previously powerful and eternally powerless, well into 1794. As Mike Duncan said in his Revolutions podcast when he covered the French Revolution, the revolution would ultimately devour its own children. That series is highly recommended, by the way, for anyone interested in learning more about the French Revolution than I'm able to cover here. And I'll post a link on the source notes for this episode for anyone interested. For now, let us hop back across the pond. As 1793 drew closer to its last days, the day that Washington had been trying to avoid and that the Secretary of State had been dreaming of for some time now was also close at hand, the day that Jefferson would leave the cabinet. Jefferson had arrived in Germantown on the same day as Washington, November 1st, and, quote, alone among the executive officers, he was continuously present at the temporary seat of government. Hamilton was ill throughout November, and, given his scare a few months prior with his bout of yellow fever, was understandably shaken. Washington, Knox, and Randolph all came and went from Germantown at times, but Jefferson remained, attending to his final bits of business. One of these dealt with a matter that would have ramifications for the United States long after Jefferson was dead and buried. On November 16th, he wrote to an inventor who had applied for a patent, inquiring about some of the specifics of the machine, and informing him that the only part of his application missing was, quote, a model, which being received, your patent may be made out and delivered to your order immediately. The inventor was Eli Whitney, and the invention was the cotton gin. Like any southern farmer, Jefferson realized the potential that this invention could have to make growing cotton more profitable. He wrote to Whitney that, quote, As the state of Virginia, of which I am, carried on household manufactures of cotton to a great extent, as I also do myself, and one of our great embarrassments is the clearing the cotton of the seed, I feel a considerable interest in the success of your invention for family use. As we all know, the patent would ultimately be granted, and Whitney's machine would change the lives of southern plantation owners and the enslaved peoples that worked those plantations forever. But that is a story for another time. A great deal of work in November involved drafting Washington's annual message to Congress. This would be Jefferson's last chance to influence this message, laying out the administration's priorities for the coming year. Jefferson scholar Dumas Malone wrote that Washington, quote, supported Jefferson's position both as to the form and content of the report to Congress with respect to international relations. Jefferson was able to temper the planned censure of French Minister Genet and instead refocus the message to one of making the case for the neutrality proclamation. Washington even sided with Jefferson over the objections of all three other cabinet members, something that he had never done previously, according to Jefferson, over sending information to Congress about the British Order and Council of June 8th, authorizing British naval commanders to seize vessels bound for France with corn, meal, or flour. Once Washington delivered his message to Congress on December 3rd, one major task remained for the outgoing secretary, the completion of his report on commerce. 
The report had been requested at the end of the first Congress, but Jefferson had put off completing it due to ongoing diplomatic negotiations. Finally, the now-or-never time had arrived, and Jefferson set to work on crafting the state paper. As noted by Malone, quote, The paper embodied his, Jefferson's, thoughts over a long period about commerce and the economic development of the country, reflecting his wide experience since writing the notes on the state of Virginia. This was not the work of a mere theorist or an inexperienced provincial, for its author had had more direct contact with the problems of international trade than any other American in public life. In this paper, Jefferson, as usual, expressed a preference for trade with the French and attempted to make the case, quote, that Britain's trade was designed to preserve an unnatural monopoly of American imports and exports. As we discussed in episode 1.10, and as Jefferson was aware from a report of the British government that it ended up in his possession, this was, in fact, the case. To counterpoint, as we've discussed of Hamilton's plan, the Treasury Secretary hoped at the conclusion of his scheme to be able to break from that dependence, but felt that for the time, the United States had to play the British game until the debt could get to more manageable levels and the nation could get on firmer economic footing. Supposedly at this point, Hamilton took this report as a last-minute attack against him and is reputed to have said that the Secretary of State, quote, threw this firebrand of discord and instantly decamped to Monticello. Though I have found this quote in two otherwise reputable sources, I have not been able to track down a primary source for this quote, so I ask you to take it with a grain of salt. Given the animosity between the two men, it is believable, but whether it is factual is still in question. Jefferson's feelings on leaving office, however, are not questionable in the least. On his last full day as secretary, Jefferson wrote to an associate that, quote, Tomorrow I resign my office, and two days after, set out for Virginia, where I hope to spend the remainder of my days, in occupations infinitely more pleasing than those to which I have sacrificed 18 years of the prime of my life. He would soon be back on his way to his home in Monticello, where he planned, as he wrote to Hamilton's sister-in-law, quote, to retire from the hated occupations of politics and sink into the bosom of my family, my farm, and my books. Certainly, the Treasury Secretary hoped Jefferson was retiring to a quiet, non-political life. Perhaps, with Jefferson gone, the business of the administration could go smoother. After all the turmoil and strife of the past year, the Genet Affair, the Yellow Fever outbreak, the war in Europe, the terror in France, the continued revolt in Saint-Domingue, maybe, just maybe, the administration could get back on track and back to defining the agenda instead of having it defined by the crisis du jour. As Jefferson walked out of his office at the State Department for the last time as secretary, a cool winter had settled in over Philadelphia. Despite any hopes the administration may have harbored, though, the heat would be back on in 1794. For now, though, let's wrap up this episode with a few words about Thomas Jefferson's tenure as Secretary of State. While it is often taken at face value that Washington sided more with Hamilton than with Jefferson, Jefferson's influence, both on Washington and on the administration, should not be discounted. Washington biographer James Thomas Flexner asserts that, quote, the truth was that when a division in the cabinet was not to be avoided, the president sided more often with Jefferson than Hamilton. 
Washington was himself to remind Jefferson that there were as many instances within Jefferson's own knowledge of my having decided against as in favor of Hamilton's opinions. With this situation, Washington felt that Jefferson should have been satisfied, but Jefferson was not. Neither Jefferson nor Hamilton was comfortable with having to compete for influence that each felt by right he ought to have without question, though this rivalry was an important factor in the successes of the Washington administration by the end of 1793. By bringing different viewpoints to the table and arguing the pros and cons of their respective positions, Washington gained the insight he needed to make a decision. He could always count on the opinions expressed by both men to bring with them the fruits of their respective wealth of experience and learning. Obviously, given his numerous attempts to convince Jefferson to stay each time Jefferson threatened to resign, Washington felt Jefferson's contributions to be significant. Furthermore, the competition between the two meant that neither one nor the other gained undue influence. All that was over now, though. Flexner postulates that, quote, in some incoherent way, the aging president may have sensed the possibility that he might now lack the strength to keep from being pushed off balance if the thrust of one much younger advisor of genius was no longer counteracted by a counterthrust exerted by another younger man equally determined and strong. When he received Jefferson's resignation letter, he wrote back, accepting it with, quote, sincere regret. Since it has been impossible to prevail upon you to forego any longer the indulgence of your desire for private life, the event, however anxious I am to avert it, must be submitted to but I cannot suffer you to leave your station without assuring you that the opinion that I'd formed of your integrity and talents, and which dictated your original nomination, has been confirmed by the fullest experience. My earnest prayers for your happiness accompany you in your retirement. Never fear, though, dear listeners, I have a sneaking suspicion that we may be hearing from Jefferson again before too long. Next episode, We'll learn who takes over for Jefferson at State, as well as get caught up with developments in the West, both with the opposition to the whiskey tax and with someone we haven't heard from in a little bit, General Mad Anthony Wayne, in an episode I'd like to call Go West, Young Men. As always, a great thank you to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. The many rebellions that we covered today would not have sounded nearly as sharp without his efforts. If you, like me, could use Andrew's audio editing skills on your podcast or audio project, reach out to him via email at andrew at foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As for me, should you have any questions, comments, thoughts, or anything else you may like to share, I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Sources used for this episode, as well as past episodes, can be found on the blog at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And you can make sure that you don't miss a single episode by choosing one of the various subscribe options on the website. This podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and tune in, among other options. As always, I can't thank you enough for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time.
I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.